Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, is back on the program to provide his thoughts and insights on the markets. Urian discusses many topics, including the recent January rally, earnings estimates, and what those balloons might mean as a tail risk to the market. Urian first speaks about the Fed. The Fed keeps telling us that they won't pivot, but the market won't listen because it's currently pricing in a possible recession. But the Fed wants to send a message that they are getting properly restrictive in order for inflation to come down, specifically to 2.5%. There's a sense that 5% is peak for the Fed in terms of rate hikes, but where will it end exactly? Urian also talks about earnings. Around 350 companies have reported earnings, but earnings are being beaten by about 1.5%, which looks in line with other quarters. But Urian has a glass half-empty view. If earnings materially drop for more than a quarter by a few percent, that drop is not explained by last year's correction. So he believes 2023 will be a base-building year, a trading range year where everyone will have frustrations. Urian also touches on the debt ceiling, meme stocks, and commodities. Stay tuned for this and more. Also, per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts. So please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on February 13th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Still digesting jobs, lots of data prints, CPI is tomorrow. Uh, markets seem different than they did a week ago. So a week ago when we spoke, um, I think we were at sort of peak Goldilocks, right? The market was pricing in the best of all worlds. So a, a either no earnings decline or a very, very slight one, while at the same time the Fed would go to, you know, four and seven eights or so. On the, on the terminal rate and then pivot dramatically all the way down to below 3% uh, by you know 2024 or so. And the payroll number definitely threw some cold water on that. Um, you know, the Fed, which of course has been getting blue in the face telling us all, listen, we're not going to pivot the way you think. Like the Fed keeps telling everyone and the market won't listen because the market is pricing in some probability or possibility that we'll have a recession which would necessitate a dramatic set of rate cuts. And that, of course, is totally fair. We could have a recession that necessitates that, but that's not what the, that's not the message that the Fed wants to send. The Fed wants to send the message that, you know, they're getting properly restrictive and they will stay there as long as they need for inflation to get back to its target, not just for inflation to come down, but to go back down to, let's say, two and a half or so. And the inflation numbers have been good, as you point out. Tomorrow we'll get the CPI, so we'll see um, whether that string of good numbers continues. But the robust payroll number, number, you know, shows you that the economy is not listening to the Fed rate hikes. You know, wow. uh, the economy is running along pretty well, 
And you know whether that's because um, the the Fed's hikes just haven't worked through the system yet, because we know that this all happens with with big you know leads and lags, or whether the economy is just less sensitive to rate hikes because everyone, at least here in the U.S., I'm not sure what the mortgage structure is like in Canada, but in the U.S. we had such low rates for so long. I mean, as, as we've had everywhere, that pretty much anyone with a mortgage refinance it at a 30-year fixed rate for probably less than 3%. Same thing with corporate issuers, right? High yield debt issuers, they all refinanced, turned out at low rates. So maybe the economy just isn't as sensitive to rate hikes, at least not yet, and maybe it takes longer. But whatever the reason is, um, the numbers are still robust enough that it, it shows that the Fed is right in saying, we're gonna go up here towards 5%, and that number, is now a little bit higher than that. Actually, we can pull up slide two. The slide Urian is referring to is titled, The Fed in the Market, tweeted on February 13th. And then it's not going to pivot as quickly as the market expects. So that was the big change over the last week, that the market is repricing itself yet again. I mean, the markets, of course, is always repricing it. You know, it's always a snapshot of available information. But what you can see here, that orange line now peaks at 5.18, and it goes down to 3.13, which I think is still, you know, very, very ambitious. Um, I don't think the Fed is going to go there anytime soon, unless the economy really, you know, starts starts to falter. But again, so far there are not a lot of signs that that's happening. I mean, this this discussion now of uh, when the rate cuts could be getting pushed later and later, as you say, the market sort of repricing that. Even this lingering thought that there could be more rate hikes along the road, um, what does that do to the story for the dollar and also for perhaps EM from there or sort of the global picture from there based on how you answer the dollar question? Yeah, so slide three. And the next slide, the US dollar tweeted on February 13th. One debate that is starting to arise from this is um, and I'm not really on that on that side, but people are starting to wonder, you know. So, so there's been a sense that five percent ish is is peak Fed, right? That's where the Fed will end. And then, and the main question is just, you know, is it four and seven eighths? Is it five and an eighth? Is it five and three eighths? But that's all, uh, you know, that's all a fairly small difference. The, the main debate has been how long will the Fed stay there, right? So, as we just discussed, will it, will it go back down to three right away? Will it kind of stay in the four to five area all, all the way until uh, inflation goes to two and a half percent? But there's another school of thought which I think is in the minority, but it, I'm I'm hearing it, you know, come up now in conversations that what if five is still way too accommodative? What if it needs to go to six or seven? I mean, that's not, you know, that that's definitely not a consensus view and it's not my view, but people are starting to wonder that if if from a move from zero to five isn't enough to slow down the economy, maybe rather than instead of the Fed just going to five and staying there, it actually keeps going. And I, I don't know the answer, it's not my my default case, but, it, but it raises the question about the natural rate, right? The neutral rate or R star, which the Fed seems to think is around two and a half, three on the basis of the dot plot. At my sense is that it's around three based on uh, my estimates for R star, the natural rate of interest. Um, but maybe R star is much higher. Maybe it's at four, and which means that the Fed then needs to go to six or above in order to get properly restrictive. So again, it's not 
my 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 base case i think it's a kind of a a minority opinion but if that were to happen so here you see the dollar which of course has reversed quite meaningfully over the past uh, 3 or 4 months or so if that became the dominant narrative then i would imagine that that would uh, be be bullish for the dollar and therefore uh, would put kind of the em versus dm trade um, at risk but again it's not my it's not my base case, but it is it is a, a tail a tail event um, you know scenario that um, that you know should be should be kept in mind. I feel like the balloons have got to be a tail event mm -hmm. risk. I mean, what is it with all that we've got our prime minister on the way to the north um, yeah. today? I think maybe discussing other things as well, but certainly the balloons are going to come up. Okay, how are we pricing in this kind of balloon risk? Sure. It's it's such a weird thing, you know, the one balloon. Okay, I get it. Maybe it was uh, blown off course, and you know, my my understanding is, and I'm obviously not a geopolitical expert, but my understanding is that everybody spies on everybody else, and you know, uh, there's probably a tons of balloons up there, but they're at you know whatever forty thousand feet up in the air, so we nobody sees them, and it's sort of like a don't ask, don't tell because everybody does it. It's just you know the how business is done. Same with satellites, of course. I'm not sure what the pros and cons are of Floating a balloon versus you know running a satellite—that's that's way way out of my out of out of my league. Uh, but it is kind of bizarre that now all of a sudden we have four objects, and you know who knows maybe they're alien objects. I don't know. Um, but my my sense is that um, these things are probably always there, but that it's politically expedient for the U.S. to kind of milk the situation to embarrass China. And it's in China's interest to kind of make this go away because they want some 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 level of uh, of diplomacy, uh, which you know is a good thing, of course. Uh, but where the other ones come from, uh, I I have no idea. So it's 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 just kind of a, a bizarre story. But I I don't think it will lead to um, any kind of geopolitical tail event because if there is someone's balloon out over U.S. or Canadian airspace, then you know, it's it's on them to make sure that doesn't happen. Maybe this speaks more to climate change and the crazy stuff that's happening in the climate that's blowing these things off course, rather than someone's deliberately trying to you know, provoke someone else. So so maybe this actually is a climate change story. <laughs> All right. I won't make lots. I was going to say blow over, but we can't. We can't got to stop there. Stop there. Okay. So <laughs> let's take a look at the earnings story. If we could come back to this, because. Uh, you mentioned sort of ultimately what could happen over the course of the next year. It's been a rough start. We're, we're just about at the end here, aren't we? We're, we're just about at the end of the uh, earnings picture. So let's tee up slide 12 and we'll go through a couple of these. The next sequence of slides begins with quarterly EPS estimates tweeted at an earlier date of February 9th, followed by two earnings estimate progression slides, both tweeted on February 15th and ending with earnings estimates tweeted on February 14th. 350-ish companies have now reported. So we're, you know, past, past the, the peak of earnings season. We still got 150 companies left, but, uh, but the numbers have been about the same. So 70% are beating. That's a little bit less than average. Usually it's like 75, but it's close. Um, and they're beating by an average of about 1.5%. So on the surface, it looks like a decent quarter, um, and it certainly looks, you know, in line with other quarters. Um, so, so you know, on the surface, it's like, well, there's nothing really to see here. But that one and a half percent beat 
is definitely below average. Um, and you can see this is a daily chart uh, showing the consensus earnings estimates for the coming seven quarters. So there's a lot of depth in this chart. And whether this is a soft landing or a hard landing, uh, clearly earnings have inflected. You can see that you know last year, earnings estimates reached their peaks <clears throat> and they're starting to come down now. And if we take a look at the actual earnings season, which is slide 13, uh, we, can, we can see kind of how um, the, the earnings numbers are not bouncing as much as they typically do. So uh, we've talked about this in the past, but typically what happens, so this chart shows a weekly chart, the vertical line is the start of the quarter, and usually earnings season starts about two weeks after the start of the quarter. Um, and typically what you see is you see earnings estimates come down by about 800 basis points into the beginning of the quarter because the, the numbers, the outlying numbers are always too high. I mean, that's been going on forever. Um, and then uh, companies inevitably um, outperform and they beat, the, they beat the lowered estimates and then the number goes from uh, down 800 to plus 300. That's typically your bounce during earnings season. And you can see that purple line is the current quarter being reported. And the bounce has been very, very muted. You know, we were at minus 3.1% as a growth rate at the start of earnings season. We're at minus 2.4. So there is a little bit of a bounce, but it's by no means as much as it typically is. And you can already see <clears throat> these waves <clears throat> rolling in from the next couple of quarters. So the pink line is Q1, the orange line is Q2, and the green line is Q3. And they're all heading south um, in a pretty meaningful way. And if we then aggregate these quarters into a calendar year number, which is the next chart, slide 14, uh, we can see that the calendar year estimate for 2023 um, is, you know, is falling pretty hard. It was plus 9.4% maybe six months ago. That again, that's a growth rate. We're at minus 1.7. And if you look at the typical drift in the estimates over the span of a year, uh, this to me suggests that we could be at a minus 10% kind of year uh, for earnings. And, you know, that may not, and, and we can tee up slide 15 to show this just in a different way, where you see this across cycles. So, you know, minus 10% is not the end of the world. The market can easily look through it as long as the Fed is doing, uh, you know, is providing liquidity at that time. So the markets will always look kind of past this, but it's definitely something different from what we've seen in recent years, and you need to go back to the 2015-16 cycle uh, to get a similar kind of performance. And there are actually some similarities with that cycle. Uh, you mentioned China earlier. Um, you know, if you remember from late 2014 to early 2016, uh, we had a, a global slowdown, not a recession, but a slowdown. It was driven by emerging markets. Uh, and especially China, which which had a very weak currency that they were trying to defend. It caused capital flight. We had financial conditions um, soaring in the U.S. because the Yellen Fed at the time was trying to lift rates off the zero bound. Um, and we had uh, a little bit of an oil shock as well. Remember, energy credit spreads. So it was a mini cycle. It was not a recession, but it was a mini cycle. And then the Fed pivoted. Uh, not by cutting rates because it, 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 it only had gone from zero to a quarter, but it pivoted through the so-called Shanghai Accord, where supposedly the U.S. and China agreed, look, we're going to slow down on the rate hikes because that will let your currency 
the, that will relieve the pressure on your currency. And so at that point, we didn't get rate hikes for a couple of years or a year later, uh, until a year later. And that was enough to kind of get the system going. So there are some parallels between 2016 and now in term, but it depends on how far earnings go down. If we get a full-blown recession and earnings contract all the way into 2024, it's going to be hard for the market to look past then. Okay. Because I mean, that's, that's the question, isn't it? So much of what either parallels years past and, and different cycles and, but ultimately last year was a massive correction. So have we already done the looking through? I mean, that, that is the big question. And I unfortunately don't have an answer for it, but last year, you know, price had a drawdown of 28% for the S&P. The PE ratio drew down 33%. Was one, it lost one third of its value. The value that's, I mean, over the grand scheme of things, when you look at all uh, bear markets, that is an average bear market, you know, with the caveat that there was no such thing as an average bear market. But, but still, it's a meaningful uh, correction. The question is, can it all be explained by just rates resetting higher? And I and I've shown, you know, my PE models that you can actually make the case that all that was was the rate reset. It was the Fed taking the punch bowl away finally, too late. Uh, but taking it away um, and raising the cost of capital, which then lowers the present value of all cash flows for every asset, including bonds. And that was just purely a rate reset uh, like we had in 94. We don't have a recession yet. We don't really have an earnings contraction yet. I mean, we're on the cusp of it, as I just showed. Uh, but so the glass half empty view, which unfortunately I kind of have, is that if earnings really materially drop and they drop for more than just a quarter or so by a few percent, um, then that that kind of drop is not explained by last year's correction. A lot of it can be explained, but that would not be. So anything other than a soft landing or a very mild, shallow earnings recession, um, I think the market's going to struggle with. And that doesn't mean market's going to go to new lows. I think the October lows may very well be the lows. But it would suggest that the market might revisit the old lows or at least be stuck in this frustrating trading range in 2023 where bulls and bears alike will get will get frustrated. And my sense is my base case scenario is that 2023 will be a base building year, a trading range year where, you know, everyone's going to get their frustrations at certain times. So the bears got their frustration in January as everything right. ripped higher. Uh, maybe the bulls will get it, you know, in the second quarter or something like that. So it's some great questions uh, coming in for you here. And you actually, you, you have touched on this, but let, let's go into it a bit further. Um, so this investor joining us here saying the likelihood of the U.S. debt ceiling being resolved actually, you know, kind of before when we think, what what is the issue around the actual timing of this, the dragging out? Let's pull up slide six. The slide he's referring to is the Fed and the TGA tweeted on February 14th. So there's a lot of kind of plumbing stuff going on behind this uh, that uh, normally we don't really worry about, uh, but right now um, could be relevant. So what we know is that, of course, the debt ceiling has been reached. Uh, the Treasury is now doing extraordinary measures, which means that it's trying to find money to pay its bills because it can't uh, issue new debt. Um, at some point this summer, the Treasury will run out of money to you know, conduct these extraordinary measures. 
And at that point, you start getting into the risk of, of a default where the, the treasury can't pay its bills anymore. And, <clears throat> and at that point, you go into <clears throat> excuse me, into uh, into overdrive mode for negotiations. So right now it's kind of people are making, you know, threats, but nobody really cares because the Treasury still has money. And this chart kind of uh, illustrates that the, the purple bars at the bottom there, the purple shading area, is the, right. is, is the Treasury general account. So that's the Treasury's ash balance at the Fed. And that cash balance comes from all the QE that the Fed does, right, the gray area is the Fed's balance sheet. And when the Fed adds you know, bonds to its balance sheet, it obviously collects coupon income on that. And that income belongs to the Treasury. So you see there in 2020, when it really uh, expanded its balance sheets during, uh, during COVID, uh, the TGA went from basically you know, a few hundred billion to almost two trillion. And then if you remember, we had the stimulus plan in early 20. 21, I guess it was, um, the, the Treasury paid for that, not by issuing bonds, but by, um, by drawing down its, the, the TGA balance. So um, the reason this is important is because right now the Treasury is sitting on 500 billion or so. It can withdraw that or, or spend it down. And I think it's extremely likely that it will, because I don't think there's going to be any kind of deal until we really get to kind of you know crunch time on uh, the, the Treasury's really running out of money and it can't pay its bills. I think that's when a deal will happen. So in the meantime, the, the Treasury has some money to spend. It has this kind of slush fund uh, that, it, that never existed you know, before the QE era. Uh, and ironically, that's actually stimulative because when the Fed, uh, when the Treasury spends down this money, it releases it into the economy. So it's actually a form of stimulus. And if we go back one slide to slide five, and that slide is overall liquidity, tweeted on February 14th. You can see this because we, we've been showing this kind of adjusted or overall liquidity line, which is that orange line, and that incorporates the TG, TGA, right? So it's the Fed's balance sheet minus reverse repos, which again is a form of excess liquidity, uh, minus the TGA. And so it's possible that in the next couple of months, this orange line will actually go up as the Treasury spends down its cash balance. But what happens then, though, is that presumably a deal will be made at some point. I mean, a deal is always made, right? It's just, but sometimes it gets pretty, pretty messy first, pretty but a deal, is, yeah. a deal is always made. Um, and so at that point, when a deal is made, the Treasury will want to rebuild its cash balance at the same time that the Fed's QT, its quantitative tightening, will be in full, full, uh, full bloom, right? Uh, the Fed's going to be shrinking its balance sheet by 95 billion. If on top of that, let's say the Treasury builds up its TGA, let's say it builds up a trillion dollar cash balance, that's going to be a pretty significant tightening of liquidity. So it's not for today, it's for maybe the summer, but that's, that kind of is still looming. And so, uh, so the, the debt ceiling is usually just theatrics, you know, it's drama, but it always gets resolved. You know, Treasury, the, the U.S. is not going to default on its debt, and even if it were to temporarily technically default on a coupon payment, it'll be good for it. Nobody's going to, like, run away from the dollar because of it, at least in my view. But there are some kind of potentially unintended consequences just from the plumbing side of how this TGA account works. So that's what I would keep an eye on. A couple of other questions rolling through. This is actually going back to the balloon discussion. It is it is strange, however it gets framed ultimately. But um, 
actually, is there an impact on airlines, like taking a look at, at shares? Is there any is there any concern over sort of this idea of more things in the air that are spying one way or the other? Does it take a bite out of safety? Anything on that front? Um, I I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to guess that it will not uh, because I would hope that if the government, whether the Canadian or the U.S. government is shooting something out of the air, that they are, you know, talking to air traffic control to make sure there's there's nothing flying underneath. Um, and, and my guess is that this is something, it's, it's bizarre that there are all of a sudden we go from never hearing anything about balloons to having four of them. But my guess is at some point this will just go away. Um, whatever weather pattern is forcing this is, will, will, will change. Um, so I, I'm, I, I would be surprised if this kind of led to some kind of freeze on air traffic or, or affect safety or, or anything like that. A question on, and I think this came up last week as well, sort of this discussion of, of institutional money versus retail money. Um, what was the rally in January when you pick it apart? What, Who did you see in there? I mean, tech is bouncing today as well. So there's sort of this question mark about what, what's in there. Let's go to slide eight. And meme stocks was tweeted by Yurian on February 16th. January was um, a strange month. Um, and the rally was driven by what we call systematic accounts. So commodity trading advisors, risk parity, basically machines. Um, yep. Machines just took over. We saw the same thing in October of last year um, when the market bottomed. We had a, you know, a couple of days where stocks like these, the meme stocks were the, the retail favorites. Um, I think back in October, we had a two-day window where those stocks rallied like 28% in two days. I mean, that's just not normal, right? And it shows, shows you that these are not like regular investors like, you know, or investors like or investment professionals like are on this call, all of a sudden deciding, yeah, well, this was a really bad stock yesterday, but today I love it, so I'm going to put all my right. money in. Like, that's not how these things work. Um, and so uh, we do have to see, look through this because there's a lot of noise and it's easy to get caught up saying, oh my God, you know, there, there's something is happening, I gotta get in. Um, it seems to be mostly machines and, and, um, and also very speculative trading. I don't have a chart on this today, but if you look at the percentage of S&P options that expire like within 48 hours, you know, it's astronomical. Like it used to be that stock options or index options would have, you know, you have a month, three months, six months to maturity or to expiration. And you do it to, to provide, you know, insurance or this or that. But today it seems to be kind of a short-term way to gamble. And, and, these, and so there's a lot of noise coming from that. Um, so I think it's important to kind of take a step back. And for instance, here, you know, with these retail favorites, um, there's a lot of, you know, talk about how much they've rallied. But if you look at the entire cycle from the peak in late 2021 to the bottom, uh, which was a 50% drawdown in the index, you can see that the rally, yeah, you can see it. It's a robust rally, but we still haven't really done anything to change that chart. And if you take it a step further, if we go to the next slide. The next slide, sector slash style returns, was tweeted on February 16th. I show these these meme stocks, whether it's non-profitable tech or retail favorites, in the, in the, in the context of all the other sectors uh, and styles that I look at, and you can see that they're still way, way, way at the bottom. So, um, you know, and on top of that, we also know that leadership, the leadership of the old 
uh, cycle um, tends to not repeat in the next cycle. So the fact that when the market goes up in recent weeks, it is driven by these kind of junky stocks, these cats and dogs, um, to me is, is confirmation that this is not a new bull market because the leadership wouldn't be in those stocks. So uh, it's a good reminder that, you know, when the NASDAQ had its dot-com bubble burst back in 2000 to 2002, I, I think the number is that there were like 17 huge rallies along that massive decline and they were all still in the old stocks that had led on the way up because people think, oh, you know, I get a second chance at these. Uh, but out of that whole bear market, which saw the market go down 53%, but the NASDAQ went down much more, of course, the leadership was completely different. It was value, it was small cap, it was international. So um, so I, to me, this is mostly noise and machines kind of dominating the tape here. So, so January took things just to sort of get your final thoughts on on what we saw did did january take things too far i mean the over the skis comment is that is that applying here so the question is did the january rally kind of you know is the market over its skis uh as a result of that rally and i think the and i think the answer is yes if we look at uh valuation whether you look at it from a dcf standpoint or uh, the two-year treasury yield which is a proxy for the fed cycle or real yields you can see that the market's rally was not really entirely justified, especially if the Fed is going to pivot slower than the market expects. And of course, the last week has shown that that to be true. Uh, and or if earnings are at risk, which is also the case, because again, the forward PE is only as good as the E. And so to me, the market is a couple of PE points um, uh, ahead of itself. It's not the end of the world. It means we have, you know, maybe a few hundred S&P points of downside risk, um, and and it to me it confirms the the, the narrative, my narrative that uh, 2023 is going to be a year of kind of choppy sideways, where for a few months we we think we have tailwinds and then we have headwinds, and all in all, uh, I don't think we're going to make um, a lot of uh, a lot of progress. And so that, the Super Bowl and, doesn't have anything to do with, no, with your outlook no. at the moment. No, no. It, it, it does not. I, I think 2023 is going to be a year where it's not so much about the beta, right, about the indices going up or down. It's going to be more about the alpha, that second order asset allocation, um, you know, ability. For for instance, EM versus you know US right. or or you know a dollar play, like second order things. I think are going to drive investors' returns more so than does the market go up or down 20%. Um, okay, I'm going to fit this in, even though we don't really have time. Uh, broad thoughts on commodities. I mean, where the leadership options are. I think commodities are in a in a, a super cycle, a, a secular bull market. Obviously, energy prices are are down. Uh, if we pull up slide 18, you can see that. And that slide sector earnings progression was tweeted by Urian on February 15th. The only two sectors with positive earnings uh, revisions this year are communication services and utilities. So a, a very boring set of outcomes and uh, energy is actually at the bottom, but that's because its earnings were up, you know, 87% last year. So uh, it, it's it's to be expected that, you know, there'll be some, some downward revisions there. But I think overall uh, value and commodities and non-US um, equities are, are going to be the leaders, not so, not not just of this cycle, but really for the next five or ten years. Fantastic, Yuri and Timur, thank you very much for sticking with us and uh, answering all of our questions today. All the best to you. 
Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.